0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. So, as I've mentioned, we are continuing in a series on 1 Peter called The Sojourner's Hope. Last week, we took the first two verses and we focused on two words, elect exiles. And for those of you who weren't with us, or if you were, as a reminder, the phrase elect exiles delineates Peter's audience, these Christians that he's writing to. It delineates their relationship to God and their relationship to society. Now, by election, they've been chosen to be part of God's people. And we talked about last week that In election, that word in the Bible, anytime God chooses people, he chooses them to be a part of his family for mission. And when that happens, automatically it redefines our relationship with society. It redefines our relationship with those around us. Peter's writing to a group of Christians that is being marginalized. These Christians are being marginalized in society because of their faith, for no other reason than because of their faith as they are seeking to live out their full identity in Christ, wherever God would call them, in their families, in the workplace, in the neighborhood, wherever God calls them, they're trying to live out their fullness of their identity in Christ. And they are being persecuted in the sense that they're being marginalized. They're being silenced. Uh, Some of them are losing their identity as Christians. I'm sorry, they're losing their identity in society Because they are Christians. So Peter's writing to this church. And in essence, he's telling them, we as Christians, as exiles, are to be what Jesus said. We are to be salt and light. So we don't assimilate into culture. We don't seek to dominate culture. But we seek to be in culture for the culture. We are God's people on mission. Now, we talked about last week that this entire series is going to unfold different questions that that brings up. For example, what does that mean for marriage and family? What does that mean for politics and submission to authority? What does that mean for all types of things? And Peter addresses those things. But before he addresses those things, he starts here. Rather than launching in to vary what we might consider practical things, he starts with their identity in Christ. Christ. He points to a hope, not just any hope, but he points to a living hope. Now, as I was thinking about hope, uh, my mind went to a a great work of literature uh, called The Hunger Games, right? So some of you have read them, some of you haven't, and you've probably seen the movie or intentionally decided not to see the movie Either way, I want to tell you just a a little bit about the Hunger Games. What you have is, is you have this futuristic story about a reality, maybe America, about a reality in the future in the author's mind that exists where after a bunch of conflict, you have different districts that make up this country, right? And each year to keep the districts in their place, there is an event and this event is two, one boy, one girl from each district. I think it's from age 12 to 18. It's been a while since I've read it. But they are, is that right? Good, thank you. 12 to 18. And they choose one boy and one girl from each district. And then every year they design this new challenge, this new games. And they put them in with different rules and different challenges. And they fight literally to the death, right? One survivor. I know it was just a small description and I'm sure I didn't convince anyone to go read the books, but that's what's happening. And there's this one time where it's starting to get out of hand, and the president of all the districts, President Snow, and the architect for this year's games are talking. And President Snow talks to the architect named Seneca, and he says, Seneca, why do you think we even have a winner? And he's confused, and he looks at the president and he says, Well, what do you mean? He says, I the president says, I mean, why do we have a winner? I mean, if we just wanted to intimidate the districts, why not round up 24 of them at random and execute them all, all at once? That would be a lot faster. The architect is still confused, doesn't understand. And in his confused look, President Snow says, Hope. Hope? Hope. It is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope is effective. A lot of hope. Is dangerous. A spark is fine as long as it is contained. Hope is such a powerful thing, isn't it? Hope is so powerful. We are absolutely shaped by what we believe about the future. Every single one of us, our current lives are shaped because of expectations we have about the future. If you have no future, right, you have no hope, it's, it is said. Our view of the future not only shapes our understanding of what might happen, but it, under, it shapes our understanding of how we should live now. And so hope gives a person direction. So anyone who believes that their life has meaning has hope. It may not be a very full hope. It may be a confused hope. But anyone who believes that their life has any meaning, that it's worth living at all, they are putting themselves in a hope. They are giving themselves over to a hope. Yet, all of us at times experience a clouded hope, right? We experience a clouded hope. That that would be when you're not really excited about anything. You're You're not really excited. You're not really angry. You just kind of are, right? You just kind of, right? A little spark, just as President Snow says, a little spark is good, But too much is dangerous. Too much hope is dangerous. Too much hope is uncontrollable. Too much hope means you don't have anything to lose. Well, Peter is writing to this congregation in the midst of confusion where their hope has been clouded. Some of them are losing their social standing in society because of their newfound faith Some of them are losing the ability to provide for their family because they no longer can participate in society the way society would have them participate because of their faith. And Peter's writing to encourage them that the reality of their hope is sure. It is they can have confidence in their hope. And he starts with two praises. This is a doxology. He starts with Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, just two, hopefully succinct, praises that we'll see. First, Christians have a living hope and we have a secure salvation, okay? First, a living hope. Look with me in verse three at the second part. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. You know, because hope is so powerful, it's also a scary thing, isn't it? Can't hope be scary? There are so many times, even in my young life so far, that I have had the audacity to have a dream, to to have a vision and to tell other people about it and to think that uh, I wanna do this with my life or I wanna do that with my life. And it's been squashed, sometimes by my incompetence, sometimes by other people's cynicism. But have you had dreams squashed? Have you had hopes dashed? When that happens, the, the, even the, the beginning bubbling of emotion, of hope, of, of, of what you might think is worthy of your life, is worthy of your time. When it's dashed, it's dangerous to do that again. It's scary. Peter had that exact thing happen to him. Peter, the one who's writing to this congregation. Peter, if you remember, was a disciple of Jesus, an apostle. He left everything in his life. He left his business. He left his livelihood to follow a man without a home all around the place, listening to him teach, watching him do some amazing things. But he put his entire trust in Jesus of Nazareth. He, he became a disciple. He gave everything. He had expectations. It was shaping the way he lived. He had an anticipated view of the future. And then something very inconvenient for Peter happened. Jesus was killed. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine you've left everything to follow this man and then you're watching him be killed. The whole time you're thinking, no, he'll come back. No, legions of angels will come. This will be reversed. And then sure enough, a spear in the side, blood and water no breathing. They peel him off a cross, still dead. They wrap him in burial cloths, still dead. They put him in a tomb, roll a stone in front of it, still dead. Now, Peter's trying to figure out what to do with his life. He's trying to figure out how to put all of the pieces together. You see, when Jesus died, the hope of the disciples was crushed. Now, many people Peter is writing to they also find themselves in a very hopeless time. Many of them, commentators would say, are new converts out of cultures where probably like some cultures and religions today, in the Muslim community, the Hindu community, even some Jewish families, converts to Christianity still experience um, a disinheritance. That is to say, a disowning, right? You, You had a stake in this family. You were a part of this family. But when they became Christians, They were sent out. They no longer had an inheritance. They no longer had a family. And in these days, these people uh, were removed from their homes, most likely, and taken to another land. And we know certainly that has happened in the story of the Bible for God's people. And in this day and age, it's not like your bank account went everywhere with you, right? Your riches, your inheritance, were the land and the livestock and other things in this particular area. If you get sent away from that, what happens? Your hopes are gone. They're dashed. So it's understandable in the first case why Peter would have experienced hopelessness when he sees the stone rolled in front of the grave. It's understandable that these people might feel a sense of hopelessness as their families are turning their backs on them. And I think when we read these verses, right, sort of, it's sort of over the top, isn't it? You kind of glaze over these verses, it's like, let's get, to the, let's get to the commands. Tell me how to live my life. Especially when I'm confused. But this language, this uh, according to God's mercies caused us to be born again to a living hope, to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, on and on. Why would Peter start there when these people are hopeless? These people have, are losing everything. Why start here? Well, it's because Jesus rose from the dead. That's why. You see, what, what was it? Did Peter just get inspired somehow to find hope again in Jesus? Did he just say, that stinks being depressed like this. You know what? Forget this. We don't need Jesus. Let's just keep, let's just keep this thing going. Let's just keep the church going. He can stay in the tomb, no big deal. No, it was over. The whole Christianity thing, the whole the way, it was over. It was done. He had to go back to fishing, figure that thing out again. But then Jesus is alive. You see, that's why this is real. This isn't the idea of a resurrection, right? Something about our culture has made us think that when we read the Bible, as long as we get the message of the Bible right, then we're good, right? We, we read this and we say, yeah, that sounds Christian. That sounds good. Like that sounds like what I learned. We're good. I want this. I have this. That's mine. But then we glaze over, right? That, it's not so fixed as a hope that it shapes fully our life, right? It's just a spark, just as President Snow the prophet, right? It's just a spark. But it's not enough to be dangerous. It's, it's not enough to shape our entire life. A friend of mine sent an email to me over Easter uh, just as a meditation um, as what he was thinking about and he was reflecting about how the resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of the Christian faith. And these were his words. He was reflecting on uh, the reality of the resurrection. He says, isn't it interesting that so many people, this was on Easter, remember, "will, will get dressed up in spring colors, go to church, take pictures, and never think about the reality of the resurrection. He said, The resurrection, we believe a man was slaughtered, hung to die, peeled off the cross after asphyxiating, embalmed in, well, that's not true. I don't know why he wrote that. Wrapped in burial cloth, (laughs) placed in a grave, and laid there for over two days as his body began the decomposition process. And then from some kind of power and consciousness outside of the physical realm, brain activity was rekindled. Breath was blown through his lungs anew, and his decomposing flesh and organs were healed in the blink of an eye. Then he sat up, walked out of the tomb with, by the way, glorified capabilities. The only reason Peter has hope is because he saw that man. He saw that dead man come back to life. He watched him die. But now he's alive. And Peter's saying, we have a great hope. It's a living hope. It's not dead. It's alive. It's not a message. It's reality. It's the truth. And we glaze over these verses. I understand. I do it too. But this is the Christian faith. that we have to, We're slowing down big time today before we get on with the rest of the letter because this is where he starts and this is where we have to start. We have a living hope because Jesus who died is now alive. He's actually alive. Still has a body. You will see him with your face, whether you believe and trust in him or not, or you do, you will see Jesus of Nazareth alive with scars, looking at you with eyes into your eyes. That will happen. And as Christians, that is our hope. So it's a living hope. It's not a dead hope. And it's through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And uh, here's the interesting thing. Is that we can't stop merely at our hope is because Jesus rose from the dead. It has to go from our hope is that Jesus rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, I will rise from the dead. See, that's the Christian hope. That's the full orb Christian hope. So how does this work? Well, the new life that God gave Christ in the resurrection, he gives to us, his children. So our hope is not only because he lives, it's because in him, we live too. So the new creation began when Jesus was raised from the dead. And then this thing called new birth. Can you think of anything more all-encompassing than this word new birth? And by the way, this is the only time this particular word is used in the New Testament, this chapter, twice. He has caused us to be born again, caused us to be born again to a living hope. Just for a second, think about birth, right? When, when, you, when a baby is born, They're born into a family. They're born with a citizenship. They're born with certain DNA. And that DNA is given to them, designed, that as they grow, it will make them into a certain type of person with certain characteristics and certain traits. Well, when you and I were born again, in a sense, when the Holy Spirit came into us and brought us to life, we became part of the new creation and we get this new DNA. And now we will become like him. We are now part of and experiencing the new creation. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in our lives now. That is how it works. That's why the resurrection matters. So in Christ', His resurrection, the renewal of all things begin, and part of all things renewing is our new birth. That's amazing that we will be born again. Now, of course, we're already at a disadvantage in our current culture when I say I'm a born-again Christian. That's okay. That's okay. It's, It's just important that we know what we mean by being born again. That we know that it was because God caused us to be born again by breathing on us, by putting his spirit in us. And it gives us this new DNA and we become transformed and we grow more and more into his likeness. And that is a living hope. And then he uses these words, so powerful. So this idea of what are we born again to? Okay, what are we born again to? Two things, a living hope and an inheritance, right? Uh, these actually are the same thing. So when I say one, I mean both. So we have a living hope and that is an inheritance. And this hope is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, it doesn't mean, what does it mean to be kept in heaven for you? All right, this, this whole passage is actually uh, used, misused a lot. And really what we need to understand is that it's kept in heaven for us so that uh, it's given to us at the proper time. And the proper time will be at the judgment. It will be when Jesus comes back. That's when we get it, right? Our, our final hope is not in heaven. We do go to heaven, but our final hope is after that. Our final hope is on earth when we get new bodies and this whole earth is made new, right? That's why, I mean, it, uh, it's like this. It's like if I invite you over to dinner, And I have uh, uh, drinks in the refrigerator, right? So they stay cold. Why? For the appointed time, when you come over. But when you come over, I'm not gonna say, oh, hey, I kept the drinks in the refrigerator for you. You gotta climb in there and drink them. No, the point is, is when you come and it's the right time, I will bring it. I will bring it to you. You will have them, right? And so Peter is saying, this is our hope. If you believe that, it will shape your life now your then will empower your now. Whatever it is, whatever your then is, whether it's tomorrow, next week, next year, your then will empower your now. And I love this, as one commentator puts it, this inheritance, to use these three words, means that our inheritance is untouched by death, unstained by evil, and unimpaired by time. Our inheritance cannot be taken away from us, even in death. It cannot be corrupted by evil. And in fact, it doesn't, like everything else, get weaker with time. It's unimpaired by time. That is our inheritance. I wanna be conscientious of the time. So here's the question then. What are you hoping in? I mean, that's, really, that's really an implication, isn't it? If what we hope in shapes our lives now, isn't it an implication to ask ourselves, man, what, what am I hoping in? What am I hoping in? I love this quote by Russell Moore. He talks, he's talking about hope and he says, whatever we find our hope in, that's where we find our meaning in life. And he says, my life's meaning is not found merely in a satisfying job or the ki- or the kind of success my in-laws would recognize at the Thanksgiving table. That happened to me when I, when I, I mean, I'm a pastor, right? And uh, the background I came out of, that's not really successful. Not in the society standards. This just happened to me last week. Talking with a person, as far as I know, not a Christian. They've know, I've known them for a while. Met them at, at the gym where I work out. And Then the infamous question: What do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, like what I wanted to say is: What just happened? What just happened there? I mean, am I a human being still? What just happened? Are you scared of me now? Are you now trying to replay everything you've ever said to me in the last six months? What's happening right there? Something happened. But more and more, it won't matter what you do. Uh, it, it'll it'll matter to you uh, when you say I'm a Christian right? And and people, what? And so where is your hope? Do you put your hope in the types types of things that uh, whether, no matter who's at the the dinner table, they would be impressed by? You would want them to be envious of them? If our hope is in the new creation, as, as we said on Easter and last week, and I already said today, it doesn't make the things we experience now less Meaningful, it actually makes them more meaningful because then all of a sudden we don't expect our job or our relationships or our bank account or our social status to sustain our hope. And if our hope isn't something else, now we're freed up to utilize all those other things in a way that we never could have before. Right? You're, you don't walk in trying to be relevant. You don't walk in trying to be worthy of esteem. You walk in, your hope is already secure. You're not there to get your hope. You're there to serve from your hope. You've already been set free. And so you walk in and you're a breath of fresh air to everyone. You walk in and you're not playing the, the, the office politics trying to one-up someone else. And really a lot of it's in here and in here, isn't it? But when, when we're set free and increasingly being set free, we, we it, our experience of life becomes way more meaningful because our hope is already secured and it shapes the way We're living now. So I'll move on now. First, a living hope, then a secure salvation. So Peter writes to these Christians knowing they feel a sense of alienation, all right? They feel a sense of alienation and so therefore they feel vulnerable. All of the things that they used to take for granted in their society, in their culture, how they interact with their neighbors, how they're viewed by their neighbors, all of that is clouded, it's changing now that they're Christians and so they feel very vulnerable. And whereas before they may, may, may have been able to rely on their own competencies, on their own vocational skills, on their own uh, understanding of how the culture works, they just can't use those things to protect them anymore and so they feel vulnerable. They can't take advantage of rights that should be theirs and that used to be theirs because they're Christians. And so then he says this, Verse four, actually verse five. He tells them that they're being guarded through faith for salvation by God's power. By God's power. So Peter is saying that the inheritance that they have, it's theirs right now. And it will be given to them at the right time. And because this is so sure that Christians have a future hope, then it ought to shape who they are now, right? We've said this, but here's here's something new is that they don't have to guard themselves. But God actually is guarding them. He's guarding their salvation, but he's also guarding them. He's keeping their salvation safe, but he's also keeping them safe. He's guarding them by his power and i had a little section on this and i'll just go back only to say this i do want us to know what he means by salvation so i'll just say the last thing that i wanted to mention uh, salvation in the bible it probably means a lot more than we tend to think that it means all right in the bible the word refers to deliverance from any threat so personal political uh, could be from a military a deliverance from them and in the new testament it's used for deliverance from physical danger from disease from sin And Peter is referring to an ultimate deliverance that is the final goal of your redemption. And that is this, you will be given a salvation. You will be saved. You will be given an existence, a physical body where there will be no physical, emotional, economic, spiritual, any of those types of threats or danger and you will only flourish and it will only be abundance and you will only love the things that you should love and you will experience ultimate life and ultimate freedom. That is salvation. Anything less than that is not biblical salvation. But I wanna close with this uh, guarding idea. This word is a military word. So God guards you by his power. And so the word guard here is a military term. It's used to describe protection from invasion. But then sometimes it's used to describe how military keeps captured inhabitants from leaving. Right? We got your city, we're gonna set up A wall around you, you can't get out. Now, I was thinking about that, and and I would invite you to just reflect on the fact that it's God's power who's keeping you through faith. But it got me thinking about Matthew chapter 27. And in Matthew chapter 27, we see that Jesus uh, is both killed and then put in a tomb, a borrowed tomb. And uh, in that, uh, about a day later, it says, Uh, some of Herod's guards and others, I'm sorry, some of uh, Pilate's guards and others came up to Pilate and they said, hey, just so you know, when he was teaching before he died, he gave this idea that he was actually gonna rise from the dead. Now, of course that's not gonna happen. But what might happen is that his followers may come and steal his body and then make everyone think that he rose from the dead. And so that will be worse than this was, way worse. And so Pilate says to them, well, okay, go make it as secure as you can. Okay, this is the Roman military. They have resources. And he sends them, it says, this is what Pilate says to them, you have a guard of soldiers. So multiple soldiers. He says, go make it as secure as you can. Matthew says, so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard, right? So imagine this tomb with guards all around it with weapons that can hurt you. And it's intimidating. So no one's coming in or out, clearly. And I thought to myself, what is, what is my most fierce enemy? Well, it's death, right? Nothing worse than that. Death. Not even the Roman military could keep a dead Jesus in the grave. He was dead. No one's coming in, no one's going out. So the Roman military is guarding the tomb by their power. And everyone's intimidated except the Lord Jesus who walks out. Now, who knows what happened to them? I don't know what happened. But this is my point. You say, what, what, is, he, what is he saying? Nothing, nothing can overcome God's power If he's protecting you, if he's guarding you, he has you. You don't have him. If you had him, Christianity is bad news, not good news. Because you're not very strong. You're not very powerful. But when you get to the point where you realize you are at the end of yourself, it's there that God's power is still. You see, God's power can overcome anything. It overcomes everything. Everything, and it's that power who keeps you. It's that power who guards you. It's that power that lives in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we move forward in this series, we get to some really interesting topics like marriage and family and politics and all sorts of other things. Know this, we don't need a Messiah. We have a Messiah. We don't need anything stronger than the power of God because it guards us. That's our hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your powerful right hand that leads us and saves us. And then as Psalm 73 says, after this, you will bring us to glory. Father, I pray that our future hope would shape more meaningful lives for us this week as we leave that we would pursue emotional and psychological and spiritual and physical healing, but all of that to the end of putting our hope on display for others. We pray that you would give us boldness and courage that as we walk into any place that you would have us go, that you are there protecting us, guiding us, and our hope is kept completely secure and safe.